following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. All right, church, last week we talked a lot about doubt. We looked at that moment in, uh, in um, John the Baptist's life uh, when John the Baptist, the John the Baptist, experienced doubt. John, who was created with this incredible and specific calling, the one who was placed on this earth to prepare the way for Christ, to prepare the way for the Messiah, the first prophet in over 400 years, the John the Baptist, who was put here with the purpose to say, he is here. The one we've been waiting for is here. The John the Baptist wrestled with doubt. John preached, repent, be baptized, the Messiah's coming. Then finally that moment came when John the Baptist was able to baptize Jesus the Messiah is here. And we, like we talked about last week, as we fast forward though, John had preached this message and uh, appeared to have angered uh, a couple of the ruling power of his time. Turns out that boldly calling out sin was not popular then either. And uh, John was thrown into prison. And last week, as we said, we saw this completely raw and human look at John. This prophet of God sits and he wrestles with his doubt. He wrestles with the weight of, Jesus, are you the one? Or is there still another to come? He wrestled with the fact. Think about this. He was given, he was charged with one task, one calling, that was to prepare the way for the Messiah. And here he is left in prison, locked in prison, wondering, did I do it? Is it done? Is my mission accomplished? Are you really, are you really the Messiah? It's such a beautiful and relatable text. Jesus responds to his doubt with miracle after miracle, demonstrating his authority as the God-man, and then he sends John's messengers back to John to tell them what they have seen. So in the presence of John's doubt, Jesus strengthens John's faith. Last week, we talked about our doubts, John's doubt, and this morning, though, as we come back to this scene, we're going to talk a lot about expectations, so let's pick up right where we left off. Let's, let's drop in at verse 24 of chapter 7 in Luke. Verse 24 says, when John's messengers had gone, in other words, they had returned, they had already gone back to tell John all that they have seen. After they left, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. And listen to this, he's capitalizing on this teaching moment. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? 
Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are in the king's courts. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Jesus looks at these crowds, and he says, What were you expecting to see in John? What were you expecting when you went out to see John? Were you expecting to find a weak man blown to and fro by the wind? Someone without any strength? Because that certainly wasn't what you saw when you saw John. That's not what you found. Were you expecting to go out and find a really good-looking dude? A fashionable preacher? Because that certainly was not what you found when you found John. In fact, he was this scraggly mountain guy and animal skins and probably smelly and eccentric. That was John. What were you expecting to find? Then Jesus asked, were you expecting to see a prophet? Is that what you were looking for? Is that what you were expecting? And Jesus says, yes, even more than that. If you were expecting a prophet, in other words, John exceeded your expectation. Because he was even more than that. And then Jesus quotes the scripture here in our text. And it's, it's not a direct quote. But as Jesus, you get the privilege of loosely quoting, okay? Um, Malachi 3.1 is probably the most direct reference that we have here. Malachi 3.1 says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And so Jesus says this, look, look, John, the eccentric John, that burly man of, a, of John, the one who you weren't expecting, he is in fact the one. He is the one who was called to prepare the way. He is the one. John, who you weren't expecting, was the one who was sent and called to prepare the way for the Messiah. And by the way, the Messiah, the one you've been waiting for, he's nothing like what you were expecting either. And then Jesus goes on to say, verse 28, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Now those are lofty words. Those are lofty words. Jesus says, John was the single greatest human to have ever been born. For a moment, think about that. Let's just think about it scripturally. Let's think about all the giants of the faith that we see on the pages of scripture. Abraham, Moses, Joseph, Joshua, David, Isaiah, Elijah, Daniel, Jeremiah, none of these, according to Jesus, matched John. Why? Why? What was it? It was because of John's great task. Listen, God gave John the most honored calling the world has ever known, and that was to introduce the world to Jesus. His rank as the greatest to have ever been born did not come because of how great he was, didn't come because of how great of a person he was in comparison to all of the others who have come before him. That's, what, that's not what made him great. It wasn't his person, it wasn't his personality, it wasn't his human accomplishments. It was the great task that he was called to. 
the great task that he was given to prepare the world for the Messiah, to prepare the world for Christ. And so think about it in this moment. In this moment, John sat, as John sat in prison, wrestling with his doubts, he's wrestling with the fact of, is my task complete? Did I fulfill the calling that God gave me to fulfill? Is my purpose complete? And Jesus here is in the presence of these crowds. And he says, yes. I am he. I am the one. I am the one John prepared you for. Therefore, he is the one. I am he. And by the way, as we read the rest of this verse, it's important to understand that, John, uh, that Jesus doesn't now turn and kind of badmouth John. Uh, listen to this. He's, this is not a slam. Verse 28 says, he's the greatest born among women, right? Then he says, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he is. Jesus is not downgrading John here. He's not denigrating him here. Uh, no church, but there's something here that's incredible to see. Listen to this. Jesus is saying, membership in the kingdom of God is more wonderful and more incredible than even being the greatest human being to ever walk the earth. Jesus is saying, even being the greatest prophet the world has ever known, the greatest natural-born human is less important than being the lowliest in the kingdom of heaven. So I just want to pause in our story here and just remind you that this is the kingdom you're called into. Earlier today, we... we prayed and we talked about the fact that our kingdom, our citizenship is in heaven, right? Well, this is what is on display here. This is what's being offered to you through Jesus. And through Jesus, you're given membership into the kingdom of God, and it's the, and the greatest on earth, the, the greatest things on this earth pale in comparison to that. Jesus came to preach the kingdom of God, and then he invites you into it through his work. In fact, Jesus says, Matthew 4, 17, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus preaches the kingdom of God, invites you into it. And for many of us this morning, I believe this is exactly the message that we need to hear. It is so easy to live our lives and forget all about this, to live all of our lives and think that what we see around us is all there is. Maybe you're here this morning and you are so wrapped up in life's distractions, all the stuff of life, and it's so easy to do. Maybe you're here and you're so wrapped up that you're, you're failing to see the things that is of greatest worth and value. In the words of Christ, he says, look up, repent, because the kingdom of heaven is here and the kingdom of God is better. Membership in that kingdom makes everything else, the wealth, the fame, the prestige, the comfort, the security, the fill in your blank there, all of it pales into comp in comparison. Jesus says, what, in Mark 8, 36, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? In other words, there is no real profit here. There is no real gain here because everything in this world is bankrupt in comparison to being a member of the kingdom of God. 
And let's just be honest here. For anyone here in this room who has ever gone through a season of your life where you have completely given yourselves over to this world and the things of it, for anyone here who can relate to this, who has just poured out your everything into this kingdom, you could probably be the first one to tell us with even greater passion that that road ends in destruction, that this is bankrupt. We know it's empty. If you're wondering if it's empty, just find someone who's done it and they'll tell you. It's empty, yet all too often, just like the people back then, we chase all of that stuff, all the stuff of this world, and Jesus says, you forfeit your souls. And Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God and inviting you in, and the question this morning is, what is your response to that? How do we respond? That's the real question. In our text, what was the response of the people to Jesus? Well, what we see, starting in verse 29, is that it is divided. Look with me at verse 29. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. Verse 30, but the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. What we're seeing here is the people, the crowds, are being divided into two people. One group is the um, commoners, we'll call them, the common people here. The people, uh, even the tax collectors, right, who heard and, and witnessed this and these commoners declared God just. They accepted the truth of Christ, what he was saying. They accepted the truth of this crazy desert prophet. They accepted that truth. It wasn't what they were expecting. No one saw that coming. But as these people witnessed it, they saw it, they accepted it, and they believed it. Now, the other group, filled with religious leaders, the top class of people, the leaders of this time, the lawyers, they heard it, they rejected it all. By the way, this is not a slam to anyone here who's a lawyer. We love you, right? Um, but they heard it and they rejected it. They didn't accept it. They counted it as madness because it was not what they were looking for. It was not what they were expecting. How could this eccentric desert prophet be the greatest who had ever lived? I mean, have you met us, right? How could this be? This isn't, how could he be the one that prepares the way for the long-awaited Messiah? More than that, how could this Jesus truly be the long-awaited Messiah? This is nothing that we were expecting. Neither of them, Jesus or John, was anything that they were looking for, anything what they were expecting. And so Jesus here addresses the second group. Verse 31, to what then shall I compare this people, the people of this generation? What are they like? And then he gives us this analogy starting in verse 32. They are like children sitting in, a mar in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you and you didn't dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. So follow the picture here. Follow the picture here that Jesus is painting, two groups of children, right, calling out to each other. Uh, we played the flute. By the way, that was a common instrument you would play for dance and 
celebration. This was the wedding feast instrument, right? So we played the flute. You didn't participate in that dancing. You didn't participate in it. It wasn't to your liking. It wasn't what you were expecting. We also sang the dirge. Don't use that term. I think we should. Um, This is a song that is sung at a funeral. Total opposite end of that spectrum. It's a funeral song. It's a part of the mourning. And we sang it, and you didn't weep. You didn't respond. You didn't participate. That one wasn't to your liking either. You didn't respond either. Now, Jesus here is going to bring that crazy analogy to bear on these people. Listen to this, verse 33. For John the Baptist has come eating no bread, drinking no wine, and you say, he has a demon. So like the dirge, like the funeral song, you didn't participate in it, you didn't accept it, you didn't respond to John. John was this eccentric desert prophet, not indulging in bread or wine, living as a mountain man, eating honey and bugs, right? You saw him, you heard him, you didn't respond to him, you didn't accept him. In fact, you saw him and thought, that dude has a demon. He wasn't what you were expecting, and so you accused him of being possessed by a demon. Now, next verse, verse 34, the son of man has come eating and drinking. And you look at him and say, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, like a joyous wedding dance. You didn't participate. You didn't accept it. You didn't respond to me. Jesus came spending time with sinners, eating with them, drinking with them, was a friend to them. Whereas John withdrew to the desert, Jesus lived among the people. But neither was good enough for you. Wasn't good either. Because you didn't accept me. Jesus is saying here, look, I was not what you were expecting. So you said, look at him, and accused him of being a glutton, drunkard, and friend of sinners. Jesus says, we played the flute for you, you didn't dance. We sang a dirge, and you didn't weep. Jesus said, you didn't accept the the message of the gospel. You rejected John. You rejected me. Your expectations weren't met, and so they were rejected. And now, as the popular expression, I don't know where this comes from. The proof is in the pudding. You can probably tell me. Don't tell me now. But as that popular expression says, look at verse 35. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. Wisdom is proven right, proven to be correct by all her children. In other words, the wisdom of John and Jesus, the wisdom and truth of their teaching, the wisdom of the gospel is proven by those who follow him. Proven by their disciples, those commoners who heard and received and were transformed by it, the proof of wisdom is lived out, proven out by their followers. Jesus says the proof is in the pudding. Wisdom will have fruit. We're pudding. Truth will bear fruit through those who follow it. What a statement. But listen, as we read this story, it is really easy to read this and think, well, look at those fools. Look at those bozos. Like, 
They failed to see John the Baptist. They failed to see Jesus. Look at these crazy people who had all these expectations. And when their expectations weren't met, they rejected it. They were unable to see the truth. Look at these crazy people. It's easy to look back and think, why didn't they get it? Why didn't they understand it? It was right before their eyes. I mean, Jesus himself was right before their eyes and they couldn't see what foolish people. It's easy to do that. It's a lot more difficult to see ourselves in those people. It's really important to know, church, that Christ, the gospel, his disciples, his church, are just as unexpected today as they were back then. And we have just as many expectations. Our world has just as many expectations as they did back then. In fact, let me go out on a limb here and say this. If the gospel ever becomes mundane or expected by our world, by our culture, if the gospel ever becomes that, we can be assured that it is not the gospel. And I want you to hear me. It's not because we're crazy, hostile, weirdo people, contrarians. No. It's because the gospel is founded on Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ is and was unexpected. He was unexpected back then. He's unexpected now. The world didn't accept him then, and the world doesn't accept him now. In fact, Jesus warns us of this so wonderful and directly in John 15. You don't have to turn with me here, but John 15, 18 says, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. It's reassuring. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but because you are not of the world, but because you are not of the world. But I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. How is that for clarity? Notice the world doesn't hate us, again, because of our hatred, because of our judgmentalness, because of our hypocrisy, any of those things. No, the world hates us because of our Christ. Listen, the, world, the gospel will never be perfectly at home in this world. The gospel will never be perfectly at home in this world, and we need to stop expecting it to be. We've got to stop expecting it to be. Just as Jesus experienced rejection, John was rejected, so will we as we stand on the gospel. This kingdom, we've said this already this morning, this kingdom is not ours. Our citizenship is in another. And I say this because I want you to hear me, brother, sister, if you're feeling like an oddball, if you're feeling like an oddball where you live, where you work, if you, if you feel a little bit lonely in the things that occupy your heart and mind, stand strong. Don't be caught off guard. And know that you are not alone. In fact, if you look around this room, 
Not only is the gospel not at home in our world, but church, because of Christ, because of the gospel, the church will never be truly at home in this world. In fact, Peter is going to describe you like this. As you look around this room, here's what Peter says about us. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not my people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Church, our goal, listen, is not to make sense in into this world. Our goal is to glorify God in it. Our goal is not to make sense to the world, but to live our lives in a way that they, they shine before them, let them see the way we love each other, see the way we conduct ourselves, that they too may be drawn to Christ whenever we begin to make perfect sense to the lost world around us. Whenever your life, the way you live your life, the way you spend your money, spend your time, whenever all of that begins to make perfect sense to the lost world around you, whenever our church gatherings start to just make perfect sense to the lost world around us, whenever we are no longer a people set apart, we have started to begin, we've begun to forget that this kingdom is not ours that our citizenship is in another. We see this in Luke 7 with the two camps of people. Those who hear and respond to the gospel, see and follow Christ, become members of that kingdom that Christ offers, and those who don't. Those who hear and reject, those who choose the kingdom of this world and reject Christ. The gospel was unexpected then in church. Our gospel is unexpected today. Both Jesus and John were rejected. They did not fit the expectations of this world, and our gospel is unexpected, and you will face, you will face rejection. To say this differently, the gospel is countercultural, and apart from God transforming their hearts, transforming their minds, the world's gonna hate you Sounds really heavy, doesn't it? The world is going to hate you. For a 2018 American Christian, that is really hard to hear. But those are Jesus' words. The kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God do not play together. They don't mesh. They're two different kingdoms with two different rulers, and neither ruler wants to share power. And here's my point. The gospel is unexpected. We have an unexpected Christ. Think about it. Jesus Christ, son of God, all-powerful, all-knowing, perfect king that we sung about. We would be expecting a king to come in the robes and the palace and the power and the armies, right? But our unexpected Christ laid down his rights as God humbled himself, taking the form of a servant, became man, died on the cross for the sins of his creation. He is unexpected. 
And our unexpected Christ now offers us an unexpected grace. Just as he came and offered good news to sinners, to the rejected, to the lowly back then. Church, Christ offers good news to sinners, the rejected, the lowly, the broken today. Luke 5 says it's not those who are well that need a physician, but those who are sick. I have come to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In other words, he didn't come for the good. He came because he is good. If he came for the good, that wouldn't be grace. But he is good, and he came for the lost, and he came for the broken, and he came for sinners, and that is unexpected grace. Our unexpected Christ came to offer an unexpected grace. And not only that, through that grace, God now transforms you and gives you an unexpected power through his spirit. Don't miss this. You're not just saved from your sin and then left to flounder there. No. Jesus says in John 16, 7, nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. And we read that and think, what? Jesus, just stay. How could, you, how could that possibly be true? Then he says, for if I don't go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And we read that still and we think, and how could that be better? How? Well, it's better because of the truth of Romans 8, 11 that says it's the spirit of who raised Christ from the dead, who now indwells you. <laughs> what an unexpected power through the Spirit of God. So we have an unexpected Christ who gives us unexpected grace, who empowers us with an unexpected power. And get this, he now takes you, takes those who have been given grace and power, and he places you in this unexpected community. He's calling a people to himself, a group of unlikelies. As we said before, the commoners. He's calling us together, a group of sinners who have experienced his grace. I don't know if you noticed, but in the two groups in our text, you had the leaders and you had the commoners. The group who received the truth was a bit of a scraggly bunch. They, uh, I'll put it this way, Christ calls scraggly people, broken people. He still does, praise God he still does that because that's why you and I fit right in to this scraggly bunch. Christ takes this unexpected group of people and he brings us together to make one body, one collection, not just a bunch of individuals with their own personal Jesuses. No, he calls us together as one by the power of his spirit to be one body. How unexpected is that? Think about this. What an unexpected thing it is to see in any generation and any culture, to see the rich and the poor standing beside the table. To see the black and the white, the man, the woman, the CEO, and the freshman in college. That's awesome. That is 
awesome. The single and the married, the young and the old. Christ dies for all and all come together united as one, caring for each other, bearing for one another's burdens, and loving each other through the power of Jesus. That is so unexpected. So unexpected until it all comes together around the throne, that scene in Revelations, when all nations, all tongues, and all people come together as one community. We have an unexpected Christ, gives us unexpected grace, empowers us with an unexpected power, places us in an unexpected community, and then calls us together on an unexpected mission. Jesus, we know this text, it says, go and make disciples, Right, Matthew 28, we also read in, in Acts 1.8 that you're gonna receive power. There's that power we just talked about. You're gonna receive power and you're gonna be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus calls us into this kingdom and then calls us to be ambassadors for this kingdom. Think of how crazy that is. We who are unworthy of the kingdom are now called to be the ambassadors for the kingdom. We who are unworthy of Christ are now called Christians, little Christ, to image him to the world who doesn't know Jesus. How crazy and unexpected is that? We have an unexpected Christ, gives us unexpected grace, empowers us with an unexpected power, places us in this unexpected community, and then sets us together on an unexpected mission. And why on earth am I saying all this? I am driving this point home. The gospel is all about the unexpected. We are called to see, we are called to believe the unexpected, and we are called to share the unexpected with those who aren't expecting it. This is our calling. And it's easy to look back at this text and to play the judge and think, wow, I wish they would get it. Why didn't they get it? Just as it is easy to look at our neighbors and say, ugh, if they just were to see, right? But church, our gospel is still unexpected. And to the lost world around us, it's not just unexpected, it is downright foolishness. Who would believe a crazy desert prophet? Who would believe a Jesus seemed crazy? And this is still our Jesus. This is still our gospel. This is still our world. Our gospel is still unexpected. And praise God, all praise be to God for opening my eyes to see what is still unexpected. Because apart from the grace of God, I'd be just like these Pharisees and lawyers saying, no, this can't be. This can't be it. This isn't quite right. But praise God, he's done a work in my heart, giving me eyes to see the beauty of the gospel of Jesus that has exceeded all expectations. Listen, sometimes I think we can forget how unexpected our gospel is, how unexpected it is for those who have not yet responded to it. You hear me? If you haven't responded to the gospel, this may sound weird. I wish I could do a better job of explaining it. the wonder, the joy of walking with Jesus, 
knowing him, experiencing his grace, his power, being a part of his people, his community, being a part of his mission. I wish that my words would do it justice, but they don't. The gospel is too good for description. Yet by the grace of God, we are called by him to see and to believe the unexpected. And if that's you, if you've not responded to the gospel, if you're like the first group of people who have heard the gospel who just have not received it, Christ is inviting you to be a part of his kingdom through his work. Would you look to Christ? Would you respond? And as we close, I want to remind you of our final verse. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. As we said, the proof is in the pudding. The proof is in the disciples. So I can say, and I do say, with complete and total confidence, look to Christ, taste and see that he is good. And that is all the proof that you will need. The unexpected is proven by those who have received it. So this morning, I just pray that we would respond and receive this morning. You're a member of the kingdom of God and everything else pales into comparison to that. Let's pray this morning together. And let's just respond to this unexpected good news. Would you pray with me? Lord God, you are so good. You are so good. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you are sovereign. We thank you that you are over all things. God, we thank you for saving us. Lord, forgive us when we look around and and we become discouraged because the world doesn't accept us the way that we would want to be accepted. In those moments, Lord, would you strengthen us? Would you grow our confidence? Would you show us that we are not alone? God, I pray in this moment that you would open our eyes to the beauty of your son, the grace that is offered through his work, the way that we are empowered now through your spirit, The way you have placed us and called us together as your people and set us out on this wonderful and glorious mission. God, would you open our eyes? Would you stir our affections for Jesus this morning? And for those here who do not yet know you, Lord, would you continue to do a work? Would you open eyes to see that which is unexpected? Would you open hearts to receive that which is beyond description. And for that, we give you the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.